white people, they're middle class people, they're educated people. There's sex, there's money, those are all those are very titillating to the media and that is not a recipe for due process. It's a recipe for sensationalism and for the general public to have lots of opinions about, you know, really case facts and details that they really don't know anything about. Hello and welcome to episode five of our podcast, The Jen's Soaring Case, A New Verdict. This episode focuses on a very special piece of evidence. We delve into a detail that is arguably more controversial than anything else in the Hayson murder case and the verdict against Jen Soaring, a bloody sock print. If it hadn't been for the sock print, I would have found him innocent. That's what one of the jurors, Jake Bibb, said about Yen Soaring's conviction. Why is a sock print so important? Can it help unravel the mystery of a brutal crime? And what significance did it have specifically in the case of the Hayson murders? Hello, Ralph. Thanks for joining me again today. Hello, Daniela. My pleasure. The LR3 sock print is almost famous when talking about this horrible murder and is probably, next to Yen Soaring's confession, the most important piece of evidence that led to his conviction. Yes, and today we'll discuss this piece of evidence in depth. In the end, we'll see that it is not an persuasive piece of evidence at all. At the crime scene, one of the first pieces of evidence investigators found were sock and shoe prints on the wooden floor and in the grass outside the house. To clarify for our listeners, item LR3 is not a footprint, but a bloody and smeared sock print. Do I understand correctly that a footprint with a sock over it is comparable to a fingerprint through a glove? That is correct, exactly. Can you give us an idea how such evidence would have been handled in investigations in Germany? It is evidence to the effect that there was a perpetrator or a person on the scene who was wearing a sock with a certain shoe size. Nothing more, initially at least. It seems strange to me that a perpetrator would walk around in socks at a crime scene. Well, there can be various reasons for that. There are many people here in Germany who always take off their shoes when they enter an apartment and then walk around in socks for hygienic reasons or whatever. That is pure speculation. Yes, as you know, the, the footprint evidence was... Um, one of the few pieces of physical evidence that, uh, that the prosecution had, but it was problematic in several ways. The expert, so-called expert, that testified about it uh, was not certified as uh, an expert in footprints. It was not his area of expertise, but he was still allowed to testify, and uh, he created this this exhibit, he put a plastic overlay of Jens's footprint over uh, this bloody sock print that they had uh, retrieved from the floor of, of the house, and they appeared to line up. The uh, prosecutor made a big deal of, about that uh, in his closing argument. But years later, when um, one of Jens's subsequent attorneys uh, began looking into the case. 
she found an actual expert, an actual footprint ex expert, uh, who gave her an affidavit saying that, in fact, the footprint was a closer match to Elizabeth's foot than to Jens's. But that evidence was not brought out in his trial. Bolstering that, that reading of the evidence, Elizabeth was observed holding her foot right just over that bloody sock print as if trying to see if it, uh, if it was a match to her foot. Want to learn more about Jens Söring and the Hazel murders? Chuck Reed, the leading investigator at the time, has compiled exclusive material for you and commented on it. Previously unpublished evidence, excerpts from trial files in Sering's diary, as well as explosive lab results. Get his report at www.sering-case.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. I talked to all my interview partners in Virginia about this sock print and whether it is scientifically legitimate to use it as evidence in the trial of Jens Soaring. On April 16th, shortly after the murders are discovered, Elizabeth Hasem is questioned by Ricky Gardner. She says she has shoe size 8. Gardner confirms this. Those interested can also read this in the trial transcript. In early June 1985, the Hasem siblings clean out the family home to sell it. Jens Soaring says that Elizabeth had urged her siblings to do the cleaning themselves without a professional crime scene cleaner. The siblings also testified to this during the trial of Elizabeth Hasem in 1987, as can be read in the trial transcripts. Nancy Hasem's best friend, Annie Massey, and also Elizabeth's brother, Howard Hasem, observe Elizabeth taking off her shoe and holding her foot over one of the bloody prints at the scene while cleaning the crime scene. So basically, she compares her foot to the bloody sock print. They both report this to the police because they find the behavior suspicious. That is suspicious, no doubt. But again, there may be different motives for why Elizabeth did that. But of course, it stands to reason that she would have associated herself with it, right? Surely it is also the case in Germany that evidence has a special significance in trials. Please tell our listeners something about the role of evidence. Well, there are different types of evidence. First of all, there is witness testimony, then there is visual evidence, and finally, there is expert evidence. Here, we have first of all visual evidence, a photograph of a bloody sock print. Of course, this is relevant in that one considers whether one can assign this sock print to a certain person, and that is what happened here. This basically means that you can often only convict a perpetrator by adding circumstantial facts that ultimately prove who committed the crime. And in this role, this sock print is also to be evaluated as evidence, specifically as visual evidence. As if the sock print wasn't already a topic in itself, Elizabeth Hasem, in a thoughtless moment in prison, gets caught up in a tall tale about the sock print to her friend Diane. I was amazed that even years after the conviction, there were apparently continuous reports about Jens and Elizabeth on TV, including discussions of the sock print. 
Diane mentions how she and Elizabeth are talking about a TV report while walking in the prison courtyard. As a joke, Diane makes a comment about Elizabeth having comparatively large feet. Obviously, he doesn't remember what big feet you have, which they're bigger than mine. And she said, of course not, they were my mother's. Well, it doesn't take much looking online to see autopsy photos and crime scene photos that show Nancy was wearing hard-soled shoes, which couldn't possibly be mistaken for a sock print. So that was something that I was pretty sure she would have seen in, I she pled guilty, but maybe at some point in her court proceedings or in Yen's, or it, somehow she would have known this, that they couldn't have been her mother's. Anyone familiar with the crime scene pictures has also seen Nancy Hasem's shoes with bloody soles, shoes with solid soles. In any case, there was not a sock to be seen anywhere nearby. Elizabeth seems to have been looking for a way out of this situation. Obviously. Otherwise, you wouldn't tell anyone something like that. On June 7th, 1985, there is the first forensic report on the sock prints by forensic scientist Rick Johnson. He concludes that the sock print corresponds to a female size six and a half or seven and a half and a male size five to six. As far as Yen Soaring is concerned, nothing happens regarding the sock print for five years. Then he is extradited to Virginia after four years in custody in England. And that's when the sock print comes into focus. One of the first steps is the taking of footprints from Jen Soaring. The police determine that Soaring has a shoe size of eight and a half foot, which is considerably larger than what the forensic expert had previously determined. It is interesting that the forensic scientist at the time is replaced and never mentioned again. The prosecutor calls forensic expert Robert Hallett as a witness for the prosecution. Soaring says Hallett explained away the glaring difference in length. Ralph, is it common to replace an expert? And after that, the original expert opinion is never heard from again. There may be various reasons why an expert is replaced, but if there are no factual reasons at first, you hold on to him. Here is my speculation as to why he was replaced. A new expert who is appointed by the court must, of course, deal with the previous evidence, that is, expert testimony, and explain and justify why he does not follow it but presents other arguments instead. That is how it would ultimately be done here in Germany. How cogent is forensic scientist Rick Johnson's initial testimony about the completely different foot size at the crime scene? They are conclusive from my point of view, and this should have been addressed subsequently. To me as layperson, it almost seems that in Virginia in 1990, they got testimony from the new forensic scientist that turned out to be very favorable to the prosecution. I always assume first that the experts who are called are acting to the best of their knowledge and independently, that is, that they do not produce biased testimony, even in the U.S. In this respect, this is also speculation. Of course, you can get this impression, especially if you also look further into the background of the alleged expert. 
The method used by Robert Hallett remains controversial to this day. He took a transparent photo of Soaring's foot and then placed that on the image of the sock print as a kind of overlay. With a felt-tipped pen, he drew the red arrows that are supposed to represent a match, and the measurements on the heel are unequal, and he justifies this with the fact that Soaring would have stepped on the floor with his heel for the second time. Could you say, what doesn't fit at first is made to fit later? I can see how someone might suspect something like that. In any case, it is not conclusive for me either. Right, you know, the overlays are, we've seen them in countless bite mark cases, countless tire treads and footwear impression cases, is that it's the power of suggestion, you know, meaning when you don't have objective measurements and somebody is just making a judgment based on eyeballing the evidence, whether or not two things match, then the subjectivity lends itself to suggestion, right? And so you suggest that it matches and there are no measurements saying that we like associated this print with this sock because there were certain measurements taken and that we have a valid database to say that if it comes within, you know, X millimeters of the actual sock and we've done all this testing that we can say with confidence that, that this is a valid opinion. None of that has happened. What we just have is somebody eyeballing the evidence and declaring a match. And that person is aware that the suspect is, you know, been charged criminally and is this piece of evidence is important to the case and case and study after study has demonstrated that forensic experts will often unconsciously lean toward a match when they believe the suspect is guilty. In early June, there was another hearing on Robert Hallett's expert status, that is, whether he was an expert witness an impression expert. As you may know, one of the jurors gave the statement that at one point in their deliberations, the jury, it takes 12 votes, the jury was split, six and six. And according to him, the uh, soft print was the thing that turned the tide. This was one of the most egregious errors in the original trial. And the evidence was that the sock print, their own evidence, was shorter than Yancey's foot. In fact, it matched more nearly to Elizabeth's foot, who wore a smaller shoe. Um, This evidence was so egregiously fanciful and unscientific now, when I first got involved in the case, one of the first things I noticed was um, that a man who has retired as a forensic scientist has sent a letter to the editor saying, what on earth are you doing? Why are they putting in this ridiculous uh, piece of um, paper that doesn't mean anything? And so I began to say, well, maybe this man is in the minority. So I began to look and got other experts. Every one of them said, this was no evidence at all that you cannot find any correspondence from these two things. Now, so that's one big error that that evidence should not have been admitted. A lot of the um, kind of junk science, we now call it, that has led to horrible miscarriages of justice. It turns out that Hallett is an expert on tire impressions, 
but not on fingerprints or footprints. At this point, it must be said that this is incomprehensible. In Germany, calling a forensic expert without specific knowledge of these issues would probably not have been possible. What has happened here would mean that ultimately no conclusion at all can be drawn from this information, especially none that would ultimately prove that this sock print was Jens Soaring's. All investigators and interview partners I talk to refer to these types of methods as junk science. Yeah, well, you know, until the advent of forensic DNA testing, you know, it was believed that forensic sciences were virtually infallible, that wrongful convictions were vanishingly rare occurrence, and that, you know, scientific evidence helped prevent, you know, a, a wrongful conviction. But what we learned uh, over the 30 years that DNA testing has been widely used in post-conviction cases is that more than half of all known wrongful convictions involve the use uh, or misuse of forensic sciences. So that's an astonishingly large number. And it just speaks to the amount of unreliable evidence that's been introduced as so-called scientific evidence. Ralph, is the sock print comparison done with an overlay and example of junk science? Yes. Can you give us some insight into the methods used in Germany? Well, as I said, that is a question for an expert. It is not a legal question. And one should have called someone who is familiar with footprints and sock prints, and in particular with the differences between a footprint and a sock print. Someone who could have answered specifically whether this sock print could come from Jens, although he has a larger shoe size than the sock print. One would naturally conjecture, no. I also remember that the expert in Jens's trial was not presented to the jury as an expert so that there would not be a procedural error on this point, which would have made the evidence inadmissible. This is completely unacceptable. Ultimately, the jury must rely on expert testimony to conclude that the sock print belongs to the perpetrator. The jurors can't come to that conclusion any other way. And if the guy is not an expert, he is not an expert. They didn't call him an expert, but presented him as such. And that, of course, is this little trick, because it makes the jury think he's an expert. Yes, but in my view, that would be a procedural error that is open to challenge. Only an expert can conclusively attribute such evidence to the perpetrator. If someone who, according to the trial transcript, is not an expert but makes an expert statement, and then a conclusion is drawn on that basis, I would say there is a procedural error. The jury can't make that distinction after all. No, but the defense could have brought that in within the 21 days. Stanley Leopikas of the FBI has also commented on this in great detail and is also very clear on the subject. He was even questionable, okay, as to his credentials or background. But they couldn't get a, an expert to render that decision. So that's, that's a red flag right there, okay? Because where would you go to find an expert? You'd go to the FBI, an active FBI laboratory examiner, and say, hey, here's what we've got. What can you do? Well, he would probably tell you it can't be done. Well, first of all, he'd say, send me what you've got, and he'd take a look at it. 
but at the end of the day, he would probably testify that there's a, a probably a resemblance, but he can't say with absolute certainty that this is Jen Soaring's footprint. They, they wouldn't do that. It'd be almost impossible. Short of identifying marks, getting off track here a little bit, but a tire, it gave you a tire mark or a footprint. Whenever an expert testifies in court, they usually have a, a blow up of whatever they're looking at, a fingerprint or footprint, and they can actually pinpoint numerous matches. And they, they usually try to come up with a convincing amount of matches, you know, 10, 12, this mark is here, and it's constant with this and that and so forth. Well, that didn't happen. What, what intrigued me about the, the, uh, the footprint, uh, besides it being nothing more than, uh, in my opinion, a cheap magic trick, uh, was in the, during the trial, either in closing remarks or during the trial, the prosecutor refer, referred to that footprint I think he said it fits like a glove. It reminded me of the O.J. Simpson trial. You know, that if the glove doesn't fit, you got to quit. Well, it's an expression. It fits like a glove, but we're talking about a foot. Uh, instead of saying the shoe fits, you know, the glove fits. But anyway, that piqued my interest, too. And, and that turned out to be uh, absolutely bogus. And then things started to fall apart. They, they found the, the blood sample and they, they run DNA on it and it didn't match his. And I think at that point there was a, a little chatter going on. There was so much blood at the crime scene, things got mixed up and uh, on and on and on. And then they questioned the, the, the person at the state crime lab, her ability and she w was deceased, okay. It fits like a glove comprehensible or not. Even Ricky Gardner admitted to a German TV journalist in 2011 that the sock print is worthless as evidence, although he carried a copy of the overlay with him until his retirement. Stanley is right. It is not conclusive evidence. What I also find very interesting is that in 2018, Detective Sergeant Richard Hudson, who sadly passed away four weeks before our interview, found another shoe print in a stack of crime scene photos, a shoe print that had been overlooked for 33 years. And just as the sock print is important, so too is the shoe print extremely important to confirm or invalidate the testimony. And Jens's statement in England that he committed the murders alone is then refuted by this second shoe print. The tread showed that this shoe belonged to someone else. It's a different shoe from the first one, and therefore a clue to a second perpetrator at the crime scene. At the very least, a clue that someone must have been with the perpetrator or was at the crime scene immediately after the crime. This is what Chip Harding has to say. When you look at those footprints and shoe impressions, we want to go a step further than the magic trick. Richard Hudson, who was a detective with me for years and worked with us on this case, we were going over the few crime scene photographs we had one day, and Richard said, oh my God, look at this. Clearly, when you really focused in on the area he was, there was another shoe print, another tread design that had never come out in court, never any inference that there was another set with a different tread design in the blood. 
Chip Harding told me that he tried many times to look at other pieces of evidence in Bedford, and that the evidence was different each time he was there. There were new pieces in there, while others were missing. And when it came to these photos of the second shoe print, he wanted to present them in Bedford together with Richard Hudson and discuss everything there. That request was also firmly denied, and he was not even given the opportunity to show up personally in Bedford. That sounds as if Bedford still doesn't want to take a close look at the matter. Basically, you also must look at the entire setting and realize that that, in such a small town, you can't count on the professionalism and routine that is common in a big city. In Frankfurt or Hanover, for example, where I come from, a criminal court must process an average of 20 homicide cases a year. And of course, routines and procedures and questions have long since been clarified and become second nature. I think that if we keep asking ourselves, how could this happen? What was the background to it? We must always remember that the Hasem case was unique for all those involved and probably still is today. You must always put that in perspective when you look at all the problems now, including the sock print. We also talked in a previous episode about how the methodologies and standards were, of course, very different in the 1980s. The experiences of Chip Harding and Richard Hudson occurred, of course, 25 years later, and yet the reaction patterns are similar to those from the 1980s. That's remarkable. An archivist, she asked me not to mention her name, told me that it seems to her that the case is still being discussed everywhere in Virginia, even without direct reference to the names of Soaring or Hasem. But it rings a bell with people that something happened involving a German who was imprisoned for so long in Virginia. And she says, It seems that people still talk about the case everywhere, except in Bedford. In Bedford, they don't want to talk about it. And she's right there at the court archive and controls access and decides who is allowed to view the evidence and the documents. Yeah, you can always hire an expert to give any opinion, you know, essentially that you need. You know, it's up to the courts to exclude unreliable, subjective opinions masquerading as scientific evidence, but courts too often get it wrong. Ralph, how is the independence of experts testifying in court guaranteed in Germany? And what are the differences from the U.S.? Independence is guaranteed by the fact that each expert is sworn in. He takes an oath to the effect that he testifies to the best of his knowledge and is subject only to his conscience. And the prerequisite is that one has the expertise. You must prove your professional expertise and qualifications. Actually, this should not be very different in the U.S., I would like to reiterate that the sock print is not evidence that could or should have led to the conviction of Jens Soaring. Nevertheless, it was so cleverly presented by the prosecutor in his summation that it became the basis for the jury's discussion of the verdict, and apparently a misconception arose that led to the guilty verdict. Best knowledge or a verdict against better knowledge. Tammy Martin is quite sure about that. I'm not going to say it's what got him convicted, but it didn't help him. It didn't help him at all. Um, clearly, we know that the jury foreman has signed an affidavit that 
Jens was convicted solely on the sock print. Prior to the sock print being introduced, there was 6-6. The jury was divided. And with when the sock print was introduced, the jury foreman signed an affidavit that that's what, what got him convicted, was that sock print. Again, at that time, I did not have the knowledge about criminal justice, our legal system, the courts, but I knew something was not right. How could someone be convicted by a sock print? And years later, here we are, the sock print is junk science. And if that trial were to be held again today, I don't think Jens would be convicted. This was the fifth episode of our podcast series, The Case Against Jens Soaring, A New Verdict. We discussed one of the most famous pieces of evidence in the world, the bloody sock print LR3 in the Jens Soaring case, whose scientific usability is hotly debated. In the next episode, we talk about new and suppressed evidence that could change the way we look at the Soaring case. How essential is the FBI perpetrator profile in the Soaring case? Why did the jury never learn about luminol testing of the rental car? Subscribe to the podcast and never miss a thing. Thanks for listening. You're Daniela Hillers.